How would you answer if I asked you the question, why do you believe? In some of the songs that we've just sung, we've mentioned the idea that we have faith, that we believe, we have confidence uh, in the things of God, and specifically in the creative work of God. But what, what if I ask you, why do you believe? I'm not asking what you believe. That, of course, is a challenge in itself. But we want to ask the question today, why do you believe? First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells those of us who are children of God that we must be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so as Christians, we're obligated not only to tell what we believe, but why we believe it. And so we want to continue this morning with a series that we introduced last week concerning what the evidence says. What does the evidence reveal? What does the evidence show? And this morning we want to talk about the fact that the evidence shows that God created the heavens and the earth. Notice our emphasis is on evidence. We are not saying, I think that God created the heavens and the earth. We are not saying, my parents always told me that God created the heavens and the earth. We are not saying, my preacher says that God created the heavens and the earth. Rather, we are saying that the evidence indicates this. The evidence says that God created the heavens and the earth. There is reasonable proof. And it is a logical conclusion to draw that God created the heavens and the earth. And we want this morning for a few minutes to look into that evidence, to have our faith built up in that truth, and be ready to answer others who would ask us why we believe. Thanks for being here this morning. We appreciate very much your presence. I'm glad that we could be together to worship God and to honor Him as the Creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm glad that you have this on your priority list and that you made a decision to be with us this morning to join together in worship. We hope when we have finished this morning that we will have accomplished the purposes of first glorifying God and secondly being strengthened and edified ourselves. And so we're glad that you're here to be a part of it. If you're visiting with us, we extend a warm welcome to you and we want you to come back every time you have an opportunity to be here. Let's talk about the evidence and the evidence concerning the creation of the heavens and the earth. God created these things. When we talk about this, what we really have to be dealing with is the notion of evolution. Men have invented a concept as to where things came from. And of course, it's all under that sort of big umbrella of the theory of evolution. And so when we're talking about God and His creative work, we're, we're actually opposing the notion that men have suggested when they say that everything evolved. That's what we're really discussing. And we want to show this morning that evolution is not a feasible explanation for how we came to be. Now, when we enter into a discussion like that, we have to spend just a minute talking about definitions. Concerning evolution, there is something that is identified as specific evolution. And maybe the easiest thing to do is sort of graphically depict that. I want to suggest to you that if we started out with a mouse, just an average-looking mouse, and we wanted to do some experiments on that mouse, we could lead to some changes over several generations. You know, mice are, are interesting to study because they multiply quickly, and you can look at several generations in just a few weeks of time. And so let's say we started out with this average-looking mouse, and we played with the, the, the influences of the breeding factors and the genetics and all, 
Do you agree with me that over a period of time, as we continue to work with those mice in the laboratory, we could produce a mouse that looks a little different? In fact, the main difference is that we have been able to generate a group of mice with much longer tails than the ones that started out a few generations earlier. Could we do that? Well, of course we could do that. Obviously we could do that. We see that in nature. We see that over time, species of animals change a little gradually. But they don't change into different things. You know what would never happen? If we started out with that original mouse and we spent all the time that we possibly could trying to influence factors that would change the appearance of that mouse, you know what never would happen? That mouse would never change into a different species. That mouse would never become a cat. It would just never happen. That mouse looks a little different, but he's still altogether a mouse. He's got a longer tail, but he is still clearly and thoroughly a mouse. He hasn't changed into some other species. And so when we talk about evolution, please understand that we know specific evolution takes place. We're not denying that. There's all kinds of evidence that, that evolution within a species takes place. In other words, men, for instance, are generally quite a bit taller than our ancestors were. And so over time, species change, but they don't change into different species. They don't change into something different. A man is still a man. A mouse is still a mouse. You get the idea. Sometimes our critics say that we're denying what is observable. No, we're not denying this. We know that's observable. What we're denying is what is identified as the general theory of evolution. That's what we oppose. That's what's believed by many people. And that's what's being taught even in our schools these days. Our children are being taught the general theory of evolution. If we were going to picture the general theory of evolution, it would look something like this. And we'd spend just a minute sort of explaining how they say this all took place. They would say that way back in the distant times past, here on planet Earth, there was no living thing. Uh, there was just matter. And it was all just sort of a soup, a primordial soup, they sometimes refer to it. And somehow or another, a bit of energy, maybe a bolt of lightning, we don't know how it was, but somehow a, a bit of energy acted upon that non-living matter, and suddenly a single cell sprang to life. All the conditions were just right, and when that energy struck that matter, suddenly a living cell came to be. Now... What's troubling for them about that, of course, is that they can't duplicate that. Under the very best of laboratory conditions, they can't make that happen again. They never have been able to do that. But we are to believe that just by accident, by pure chance, all the conditions were right, and it happened sometime way, 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 way on back there. But then, not only did that single cell come into existence, over time it began to multiply and change and evolved, and that cell grew, and it became more and different things. And over a long period of time, a long, long, long time, those living things began to evolve, and finally, all the way to modern man, the evolution process has taken place. And so the general theory of evolution says that all living things came from that original single source, not just men and apes and animals, but even plants too, you know. Well, not only would the evolutionists say that we are related to the apes, that we evolved from them, but they would also say we are, in a way, related to that blade of grass out in the yard. All living things came from that same original living source, that first bit of 
of life that came from non-living matter. Now, that's the general theory of evolution, and that's what we deny. That's what we say is not true. It did not happen. We would suggest there are several reasons why the general theory of evolution is false. First, it's simply not logical. Secondly, it does not conform to the known facts of true science. And finally, and importantly, the Bible says it is not so. We can say, definitely, we know that evolution did not happen because of several simple things. We want to look at just a few simple reasons. And, of course, this is a massive study. We could spend a long time. We're just going to sort of be touching the hem of the garment. But we can say there are important reasons we know that evolution did not happen. First of all, we would say we know evolution didn't happen because the fossils say no. You know what fossils are, of course. Fossils are the remains of something that was once alive and somehow or another it got buried up and uh, the, the form of that living thing was preserved in sedimentary rock. It could be a plant that got buried up and turned into a fossil. It could be an animal. that got buried up and became a fossil. I remember when we were kids, we always used to like it when somebody would get some uh, fresh gravel spread on their driveway. You know, because uh, at the rock crusher, they crush that stuff all up, that limestone, sedimentary rock, and sometimes when you find fresh gravel laid down, you can find fossils in that. You've probably had that experience too. We know what fossils are. Someone might ask, well, How do fossils help us in this study of creation versus evolution? Well, the fossils actually tell us that evolution did not occur because we see no sign of it in the fossil record. Let's picture it this way. There's a modern-day reptile and there's a modern-day bird. Evolutionists tell us that the birds of today are the long-term evolutionary descendants of the reptile family, okay? So, you got a bird, way back in time, his ancestors were lizards. The birds of today came from the reptile family, we are told. And so somehow or another, this lizard was to evolve into a bird. But that didn't happen overnight. That didn't happen all at once. That didn't happen fast at all. Over a period of time, a gradual change would take place. And after maybe millions of years, this lizard is no longer exactly the same as he was. He's a little different. He's not, he's not all a lizard anymore. There's something different about But he's sure not a bird yet. He's a long way from being a bird, but he's not quite a lizard anymore either. And then as time went on, those changes became more observable. And now he's getting less like a lizard and more like a bird, but he's not a bird yet either. He's somewhere in between. And then a little later, he's getting closer now. He's getting, he's getting closer to a bird. He's not fully a bird yet, but man, he is a lot different than a lizard. He's somewhere in between, but he's getting closer to a bird. Now think about that. If that, in fact, is what happened, then over, and again, this would have taken a long, long time, millions upon millions of years for this to take place. Somewhere along this line, fossils would have been laid down. Somewhere we should be able to find this guy who's not a lizard anymore, but not a bird yet either. He's in between. He's an intermediate link between lizards and birds. We ought to be able to find those in the fossil record, right? 
In fact, Charles Darwin, in his famous book, Origin of Species, of course, uh, most people credit Charles Darwin as the father of evolutionary thought. Charles Darwin said, the number of intermediate and transitional links between all living and extinct species must have been inconceivably great. Charles Darwin said, that progression, for instance, between reptiles and birds, in between there, there must have been just unbelievable numbers of transitional forms. Not reptiles anymore, but not birds really either anymore. There must have been a lot of them. But he went on to say, intermediate links, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change. And this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. Charles Darwin said, if you want to argue against my theory, here's the best place to argue it. The fossils don't show it. They should show it. There ought to have been all kinds of intermediate links, and we don't find any of them. And he says, that's got to be the strongest argument you can make against the theory of evolution. David Kitts, a, 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 an evolutionist, but a paleontologist. Of course, paleontology is the study of fossils. He said this, despite the bright promise that paleontology, or the study of fossils, provides a means of seeing evolution. We ought to be able to see it in the fossils, he says. Despite that promise, he says, it has presented some nasty difficulties for evolutionists, the most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them. It's not in the fossils. So again, the fossils say no. Why do we know that evolution did not occur? Because the fossils say it didn't happen that way. Furthermore, not only does, do the fossils say no evolution happened, science says it as well. Now, I want you to observe, we're, we're not denying evolution because the Bible says so, although we're going to look at that in a minute, uh, and that's certainly important, and the Bible certainly says evolution didn't happen. But what we're really doing is letting science itself show that the general theory of evolution is false. And science, really the known facts of science, argue against the theory of evolution. For instance, we could talk about the law of entropy, the scientific law of entropy. This is one of the most basic laws of science. It's sometimes also referred to as the second law of thermodynamics. It is believed by all scientists. There's not a scientist in the world who would deny the second law of thermodynamics. Now, what the law of entropy says is that if you were to talk about how orderly a thing is, how uh, intricate it is, or how, how much detail and, and uh, development a thing has, if you were to talk about the degree of order of something over a period of time, Evolution would require that things became more orderly, more organized, much more intricate, much more involved over time, right? Because remember that picture that we looked at earlier where somehow or another a single cell came to life and then that evolved into all the higher forms of life that are evidence in the, in the earth today? So that would argue that something very simple started out but over a period of time, evolution has made things become more complex, more organized. Now, that's what evolution requires. But the law of entropy says just the opposite. The law of entropy says that over time, things become less organized, less structured. We see that, of course, all the time in the natural world. 
Uh, what if we were to go out to Jack's house this afternoon and cut down a tree? And we mark the time and date and we all say, let's agree to meet back here in 20 years. 20 years from now we're going to come back to this exact place and we're going to see what has happened to this tree. So we agree. And 20 years from now we come back. What would we expect to find when we got back to that spot 20 years from now? Maybe, maybe we could still detect some rotted presence of the tree that was once there. But more than likely, we won't find anything at all. It will have gone back to the dirt from which it came. It becomes less organized on its own, not more organized. It certainly didn't construct itself into a house over the 20 years while we were gone. It didn't become more organized, it became less organized. And that's what happens in the natural world. Over time, things become less ordered. That's the law of entropy. Scientists teach and believe the law of entropy. But when they teach the theory of evolution, they are actually teaching the opposite of that. They're saying, we don't know how, but somehow, in the natural world, things became more organized on their own. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by the law of science, right? And so the law of entropy argues against the theory of evolution. Also against the law of evolution is the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis is real easy, and we all believe it. All scientists believe it. The law of biogenesis says life comes from life, and living things produce after their own kind, right? Life comes from life, living things produce after their own kind. We depend upon that law of biogenesis all the time. Uh, Roger's been planting crops this spring out at his farm, and he is very grateful. I haven't asked him this morning, but I know I can say with confidence that Roger's very grateful for the law of biogenesis. Because he went out here and planted a, a field of corn. He needs corn. He needs that. That's the crop he wants. But he's so disappointed this fall when it comes harvest time, he goes out there and instead of corn, he has a whole field full of rutabagas. What's he going to do with the rutabagas? He didn't want rutabagas, he wanted corn. Well, when he planted corn, he knows corn's going to come up because of the law of biogenesis. Life comes from life. Those seeds he planted came from some living corn plants last year. Life comes from life and living things produce after their kind, right? Law of biogenesis. It's so simple. The fact of the matter, of course, is that God himself is the one who instituted the law of biogenesis. As Joshua was reading for us earlier from Genesis chapter 1, beginning verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, herb yielding seed after his kind, and the fruit tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. God instituted at creation the law of biogenesis. But did you notice how the law, or the theory rather, did you notice how the theory of evolution contradicts the law of biogenesis? Notice, here's that picture again of creation. What, what do they say? They're saying life came from non-living matter, but that they, they are forced to believe that. The law of biogenesis says that never happens, but they're forced to believe that life came from non-living matter. And then over a long process of time, things did not, things did not produce after their own kind. Do you see how the theory of evolution is right in the face of the law of biogenesis? George Wald 
a Harvard professor, also amazingly to me, a Nobel Prize winner, said one has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task. He was talking about the spontaneous generation of life. One has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task to conceive that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet, here we are, as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. You, get to, you see how prejudiced the, some in the scientific community are? He admits this is impossible. I, he said, you just think about it. And you know this is absolutely impossible, but I believe it anyway. I admit it's impossible, but I believe it anyway. That's how committed some of these scientists are to defending their unsupportable theory of evolution. Law of biogenesis says evolution did not occur. We could also argue that the age of the earth says, from a scientific point of view, that evolution could not have occurred. Everybody acknowledges that if evolution happened, it had to happen over a long, long period of time. And if you were going to try to draw out a timeline of what the evolutionists believe, they would argue that somewhere about 20 billion years ago, I mean, now, uh, only uh, the people who spend money at the level of the federal government are able to conceive the word billions, but uh, some uh, evolutionists would argue that way, way back, 20 billion years ago, our universe came into existence by virtue of the Big Bang. All the matter of the universe supposedly was compressed into something smaller than the head of a pin, and there was this enormous explosion, uh, and heat and gas and light began to emit out from the origin of that Big Bang. But I mean, it was hot. It was real hot. And it took a long time for things to cool down and begin to solidify. And so they say... About five billion years ago, our solar system was formed. That was a long time. It took a long time for everything from the Big Bang to slow down and cool off and begin to solidify. And about five billion years ago, our solar system was formed. And then it was still a long time before about two billion years ago when that supposed spontaneous generation of life from non-living matter occurred. And then, of course, it was even sort of recent history in evolutionary terms, just recently, just maybe three or four million years ago, man evolved, maybe five million years ago. So if you were looking at that evolutionary timetable, you would say, you've got to have a lot of time, right? If evolution happened, you've got to have lots and lots of time. That George Wald, that Harvard professor that we were quoting a minute ago, he said, time is the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Now, look at that quote for a minute. He says, given enough time, the impossible becomes possible. No, it doesn't. If something is impossible, then no matter how much time you give it, it will never happen, right? It's impossible. But he says, no, if you give it enough time, the impossible will happen. That guy's a Harvard professor. I don't think any of you are, are tempted to go to Harvard for your education. But if you are, I suggest go someplace else. If they got professors like that at Harvard who make silly statements like that, what else are they teaching? Now, we also have to know that the biblical timeline is much different than that. That's the evolutionary time. And they've got to have it. They've got to have those long periods of time if evolution happens. 
the biblical timeline is much different. If we were to trace back in our Bibles and try to add up all the numbers and so forth, we would come to the conclusion that the earth and the, every, uh, the whole universe was created about 4,000 B.C. Uh, a fellow named Usher put together a chronology years ago in which he, he tried to say, you know, uh, everything was created on August the 2nd, 4004 B.C. I don't know if you could come that close, but you can certainly come pretty close by adding up all the genealogies of the Old Testament. And, and we would have to conclude that the Bible teaches that creation happened about 4,000 years before Christ. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ. Moses, David lived about 1,000 years before Christ. Of course, the lifetime of Jesus denotes the, 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 the dividing line between years B.C. and years A.D. And so, here we are about 2,000 years after Christ. And so, things were created, Adam was created about 4,000 years before Christ, and we are about 2,000 years after Christ. The total of that would argue that the earth is on the order of 6,000 years old. Now, you might quibble about the exact numbers there, but you'd have to agree that there is a huge difference between the evolutionary timeline and the biblical timeline. If we can show that the Bible timeline is true, we can forget all about evolution. If we can prove that the, that the earth and the universe is on the order of a few thousand years old rather than 20 billion years old, we can just throw the theory of evolution away. Well, I think we can. I think we can prove that the age of the earth says there's not been near enough time for evolution. Uh, again, not because the Bible says so, although it does, but scientific facts themselves argue that the universe is young, not old. We could talk, for instance, about the depletion of the earth's magnetic field. You understand the magnetic field. You probably have had plenty of experience dealing with the effects of the Earth's magnetic field. In fact, our very existence on Earth is dependent to some degree upon the magnetic field. It, produce, it protects us from all kinds of harmful radiation from outer space. But Jeff, when he was a Boy Scout, and went on those, what do they call them, Rec uh, reconeering or... I'm not, yeah, well, anyway, you, you get a map and you've got to follow a compass to get where you're going. I forget the word exactly. But Boy Scouts use their compasses because the compasses act upon the basis that there is a magnetic field. And so the, the needle points to north when you look at your compass in the northern hemisphere. Now, uh, why is there a magnetic field? You know, even to this day, scientists don't know for sure why there's a magnetic field. Probably the best speculation is that there are uh, currents of molten material circulating in the core of the earth, and when charged particles follow a path, they produce a, a, a field around them, a magnetic field around them. That's the way motors operate, for instance. And so, best guess is that in the core of the earth, they are circulating charged particles, and they're producing this, electric, this magnetic field. Don't know for sure, but what we do know is that the magnetic field on Earth is diminishing rapidly. In other words, it's dying out. It's going away. In fact, they've been able to measure it. The depletion of the Earth's magnetic field is happening at this rate. The half-life of the Earth's magnetic field is 1,400 years. That's not very long. So every 1,400 years, the magnetic field is half of what it was just 1,400 years before. And so we know how fast the Earth's magnetic field is dying out. 
And, and the fact of the matter is, just a few thousand years from now, there's going to be effectively no magnetic field left at all. Jeff, I do not know what Boy Scouts will do then. If they're still Boy Scouts, I do not know how they will find their way because their compasses will no longer work. Maybe we will then have to fully go to GPS because uh, old-fashioned compasses won't work anymore. Well, what about that? If we know how fast the magnetic field is dying away, then we can calculate backwards and see how big it would have been in some time past, right? You get that? In other words, this is measurable. We can measure how fast the magnetic field is dying. Therefore, we can calculate backwards to see how big it might have been sometime in the, in the past. Now, that's the idea. Well, the fact of the matter is that just 10,000 years ago, the Earth's magnetic field would have been so strong that the Earth would have disintegrated from its own internal forces just 10,000 years ago. You ever take two magnets and try to put them together? And sometimes they'll lock right together. But if you turn them just halfway, they'll start repelling each other, right? Well, scientists tell us that just 10,000 years ago, at this rate, we can calculate that just 10,000 years ago, the internal forces of the Earth's magnetic field would have disintegrated the planet. What's that tell you? Well, it may tell you a lot of things, but it tells you the Earth can't be that old, right? Or else we wouldn't be here. And so, the depletion of the Earth's magnetic field suggests the Earth is young, not old. We can talk about the shrinkage of the sun. Back about 30 years ago, scientists were able to measure for the first time the shrinkage of the sun. The sun is getting smaller. That's not surprising, right? The sun's a big burning mass of matter out there in space, 93 million miles away from us. But when things burn, they burn up, right? They have to. And so as the sun burns, it burns up. Uh, it's not something we have to worry about in our lifetime or our children or grandchildren's lifetime. But given enough time, the sun would burn out. The sun is shrinking. The rate's pretty small, just one-tenth of one percent every hundred years. That's not much. One-tenth of one percent every hundred years. But if you put that in terms of feet, the diameter of the sun is shrinking five feet every hour. So the sun is shrinking. Now we know how fast the sun is shrinking. We can do the same thing. We can calculate backwards to imagine how big it might have been in times past. Let me give you a little graphic today. I want to suggest to you that that little green dot right there represents... You probably may not even be able to see it where you I got a little green dot right there. That's the earth and that's the sun. I think my, my graphics are not going to work right here this morning. Imagine that's the perspective today. Of course, the sun's much bigger than the earth, but it's way far away. It's 93 million miles away. As we mentioned last week, that's the perfect distance for the earth to be from the sun. But knowing how big or how fast the sun is shrinking, and this is something's messed up with my graphic here, uh, at the rate of shrinkage of one-tenth of one percent per hundred years, a hundred thousand years ago, the sun would have been twice as big as it is today. Arthur, you want to talk about hot in August. Uh, it would have been too hot any time of the year. If the sun was twice as big as it is now, life on planet Earth would be impossible, right? But we know, based upon scientific measurements, that the sun is shrinking and would have been twice as big as it is today just 100,000 years ago. What's that tell you? I tell you, 100,000 years ago, 
life could not have existed on planet Earth. You know what's interesting? 20 million years ago, the sun would have been so large. There's that little green dot that represents planet Earth. It's inside the diameter of the sun 20 million years ago. Just 20 million years, just 20 million years ago. Well, to evolutionists, 20 million years ago is nothing. Almost nothing. 20 million years ago, the scientists tell us, for instance, that they argue that dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. Really, almost all of evolution had already occurred 20 million years ago, with the last bit of it being man evolving from the primates. 20 million years ago is not that long ago to an evolutionist, but by measurements of the shrinkage of the sun, we know the earth couldn't possibly be that old. The earth would be inside the sun 20 million years ago. And so we could give those kind of arguments and more to argue that the the age of the earth would not allow for evolution possibly to have occurred. We're running out of time. Let me quickly go to some objections people raise. What about dating methods? You've heard about carbon-14 dating and so forth. Uh, don't let your faith in the, the Bible's chronology be shaken by things like carbon-14 dating, other kinds of radioactive or radiometric dating methods. Those, those methods are limited in accuracy to the assumptions used to formulate the processes, uh, and, and they've been demonstrated to be real inaccurate. For instance, uh, in a, an issue of the Journal of Geophysical Research, they, took, they did carbon-14 testing on lava flows that were known to have been laid down just 200 years ago. In other words, this volcano erupted 200 years ago and laid down this lava field. They took some of those lava rocks, they submitted them to carbon-14 dating. We, we know the rocks were laid there 200 years ago. Carbon-14 dating says they were 3 billion years old. That's, that's the kind of flaws of those dating methods. Do not be shaken by some of the false claims of those so-called scientific dating methods. And then what about someone who says, well, I don't know about this. You're saying the earth is real young, but the earth looks older than that. And, and, and for instance, they would say, what about coal and oil and gas? You know, we're told that coal and oil and gas, things like that, fossil, they call, uh, that's what they call them, isn't it? Fossil fuels. That they, that these are, the, the, these deposits in the earth are the result of organic materials that were buried and covered up and over a long period of time and heat and pressure, uh, they, they came to be these fossil fuels. And that couldn't happen. Now, that could not have happened in just a 6,000 year period of time. The earth has to be older than that. The earth looks older, they say, than just 6,000 years. A couple of things. One, I'm not sure that the argument is true that it couldn't have happened in 6,000 years. Uh, the, the uniformitarian assumptions of science are not true when we factor in things like Noah's flood. But there's also the possibility that God created the earth with those deposits already in place. That God created an earth that appears to be older that's not really surprising. We know that he did that with some things. For instance, how old was Adam just 10 seconds after God created him? Easy answer, right? He was 10 seconds old. How old did he appear to be? He appeared to be a full-grown man. He appeared to be much older. Because the first thing God told him was be fruitful and multiply, right? And so God created things as full and mature. And there's a possibility that he created 
the older looking things of earth in place. Again, our faith in, in the Bible record should not be shaken by uh, the earth or the universe appearing to be older. Lots of questions can be asked, but you begin to get the idea. Science says evolution didn't happen. Science points to the fact there must have been a creative act, and the Bible teaches that creative act. Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rest the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God created all things. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Kind of interesting here. When did God make them male and female? He made them male and female at the beginning, in the creation week. It wasn't billions of years after the universe was created that man suddenly, or finally, showed up on the scene. Rather, God created them male and female from the beginning. The evidence says that God created the heavens and the earth. And so, the question to be asked is, then what should I do about that? If that's what is indicated, if that's what the evidence proves, then what should I do? in regards to this God who created the heavens and the earth? And the answer is simply, learn His will and obey it. The fact of the matter is, it wouldn't make sense to do otherwise. If there is a Creator who's able to speak into existence all the things that we see and know in the universe today, it would be absolutely insane to ignore Him and to refuse to do His will. The conclusion is I must learn His will and I must obey it. Have you done so? Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you become a child of God? Have you been forgiven of past sins? Been brought into this relationship with God and have the hope of heaven and eternity? If not, we urge you to make the decision. Upon hearing the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already but you've not been faithful to the Lord, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Now this world